Yeah, what great verses to think about. The ministry of reconciliation. And, and you notice at the end it says, you know, we're, we've been given to us this ministry of reconciliation as God ambassadors. Therefore, be reconciled to God. Like, when you reconcile something, you have reality, and then you have what's written down on paper. And it's important that what happens in reality is reflected in your paper. That's reconciling, right? Your stock with your stock take numbers. And so if we're going to be reconciled with God, if we're going to be reconciling other people with God, well, then we need to be reconciled with God, right? We need to be lining up with him. So that's something I want to keep thinking about. Um, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9. And in the spirit of that passage, we're going to try to tackle the whole thing today. Um, the people just read the word and how good it is for us to also read the word and let it let it just uh, pierce us and uh, comfort and encourage us. Something we see in God's people is revival. There was a, a awakening within them to hear about what God was saying to them, to know God, to actually do what God said. That was all tied together and and I think sometimes I've wanted to see revival out of curiosity more than necessity. I didn't realize that I need revival. Not just, and revival is not something that happens out there or uh, we're at the mercy of a group of people kind of getting it and then God moving. But I need to get it. And I need to see, you know, like, do I care to be revived? Do I want to return to God, repent, and then subsequently reform my behavior and my life and my way of thinking and my way of dealing with other people. Because that's what revival is. It's it's uh, deeper levels of commitment. It's obedience to God. It's maturity like never before. We come to God as we are at the beginning, but he doesn't want us to stay like that. He wants us to be changed into his image, to become those ambassadors, not just in word or title, but actually be doing it. Because you can say you're a Christian, but it doesn't mean like you're, you're living like a Christian, right? We've been Christians that haven't always acted like Christians, and, and we're not supposed to act anyway. We're supposed to be. We are Christians because we follow Jesus, and he is in us. His spirit fills us, and he enables us to, to bring his love and grace to this world. Now, if we'll be honest, our flesh never wants to change even if we see the benefit. There's something in us that doesn't want to change, very resistant to any change. And I think about a, a nice fat caterpillar. If it could talk, I doubt it has any interest to change into a moth that can fly around. That would be a foreign concept to it. It's content to just get fat eating leaves. Same thing with a tadpole. If you said, wouldn't you like to be jumping? Jumping. I'm fine with just swimming. You know, swimming around in my puddle. But metamorphosis opens a whole new world to both the caterpillar and the tadpole because they change to something else entirely that gives them new abilities. It actually is not confining, but it opens new horizons to them. And that's really what revival does in our lives. Where there's, we look at that and we go, oh, that means more commitment. That means more time. That means more effort. But understand that when God changes you, you can delight, really spread your wings and get to know him in a way like you don't know him now, in a way that he wants to be known by you. So 
We, can know, we don't know what God's plans are exactly for us, but we can know they are good and that he's trustworthy. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, that you, you're gracious to allow us to come to you as, you as we are, but you want to transform us. You want to make us into new creations where the old things have passed away and all has become new where there's a newness of life, an abundance of life that we can experience today that we've never experienced before. Help us to believe that that's true, Lord, that you're that strong, you're that powerful and good, that you would do a work in us that's irreversible, that could not be replaced by any effort of the flesh, that you are, that we could have the knowledge of you as God, our Father and friend. Lord, help us to get to know you better today even as Moses desired after speaking with you to see your glory. Lord, may we not be content to just read about you, to read about what people did when you moved in their midst, but Lord, move in our midst today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, and they set set about rebuilding their lives on the principles of God's word. They came to, to Ezra and Nehemiah and they said, please read us the law of God. We want to know. We've heard about it, but we want to hear it for ourselves. And day after day, they read it. They just read the, the word. And they read it with the intent to do what it said. And that's something I've been taking to heart lately. It's like, am I reading this just to learn something or because I'm going to do something? And uh, it's been good to be thinking about and to be putting into practice. And... Uh, So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worship the Lord their God. Remember on that feast day they had when they read about the Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month. They're like, hey, it's the seventh month. We haven't ever celebrated it like this before. They all got together. They made their booths for seven days. They they kept the feast. And they were told not to wear sackcloth. Don't grieve, don't mourn. Now is a day of celebration. But here on the 24th day, they called an assembly for that purpose that they would fast, Uh, they wore sackcloth in grief, and they mourned for their sin. They confessed their sin to God. And it says they separated themselves from foreigners, and and often a foreigner, they would be serving a different God. And so they removed those uh, ungodly influences from their lives. They gathered together, all as children of God, children of the covenant that had been given to Abraham. And for a fourth of the day, or three hours, they stood and listened to the word of God, just the reading of the law. And then for another three hours, they confessed sin and worshiped God. And the Bible, reading it, should affect us this way. It should move us to confessing our sin. It should move us to praising and worshiping God for how good he is. And this confession, it ought to be specific. 
a commitment to put away wickedness from us. It's very easy for us to admit that I'm generally a sinner. Like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. But, you know, everyone's a sinner. So it's a pretty easy thing to admit. But when we make a specific confession of sin, it will, it can lead to particular steps being taken to avoid that sin. Right? If we just keep sin general, and I don't make it specific, it usually won't lead to any change of my life. But when we confess that specific sin, we can take those steps to do what's right. Verse 4, Then Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenai, Chenani, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. They begin with this really compelling picture of worship. They're shouting with a loud voice to God. To the Lord, their God. So they owned God as their God. He said, this is my God that I'm addressing. And they're outside. And so we, we teach people to use your inside voices inside. Right? There's a place for that sort of decorum. But here, they're outside. They're unashamed. They are shouting to God. And God is happy to be shouted at. He can handle that. Um, and this, they were boldly praying. They weren't just in hushed tones. They were really um, crying out to God, literally shouting to him. And the people were exhorted. They're like, stand up and bless the Lord. And so people start praising God. And I like that. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And because our God is the God of the living, we will bless our God forever and ever. He is glorious because of who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, what he will do, that he's kept his word and he will keep his word in the future. And no one can be compared to God. He is completely separate from everything else that we could know. He's not like a man that he should lie or change. He's saying, this is why you're not consumed because I change not, because I'm good and my mercies are everlasting. My faithfulness endures to all generations. And David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's where they go right away with this praise. They say, God, you've made everything. You've made the heavens. You've made the heaven of the heavens. You've made everything on the earth, in the sea, everything that fills the sea, all these living things you've made. You spoke the sun, the moon, the stars into existence by the words of your mouth. That is power when you can just speak something into existence. And that he's preserved them. He hasn't just made them, but he keeps them. He keeps a watch over them. 
And then the angelic hosts, they also praise God and worship him. So everything God has made is amazing. And then they turn it and make it a bit personal, speaking of their father, Abraham. And God chose Abram, which means high father, and made him Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now you remember, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She was unable to have children. And in their old age, when they were both past bearing, she gave birth to Isaac. And a multitude came from him. And here are the people, the children of the covenant, the children of Abraham, praising God about 1,500 years later, praising God for the promise he had made and kept towards them. They had just come out of captivity a hundred or so years before, but here they are in Jerusalem again, in the place that God had promised to give them. And they're praising the God who created them, who preserved them, and who loved them. And then they, they had been given a covenant, which is an agreement. And they rejoiced in that. What a privilege. It's kind of funny. I, I'm, I guess I'm not uh, too big into meeting and greeting celebrities, but... Um, there's people who really geek out over getting to see their idol or their the, the musician or someone they really admire. Have you ever shaken a hand of somebody and were a little starstruck and you're like, uh, you're like you really didn't know what to say because you've heard this person and and uh, you you were really really humbled to meet them. You know, if you shook someone's hand, if you had a selfie with them, if you had an autograph, that was something to kind of brag about. You you wish you could have backstage access and meet and greet them. But you know what this shows me? It shows me that we're willing to settle for far less than relationship. Because though you could meet that person, let's say that celebrity knows you by name, you don't know them. They haven't made an agreement with you. They don't have a connection personally between you and them. They know a lot of people. They've maybe signed many things. But this is God. This is not a person. This is God who made everything. And he says, I've chosen you. I've called you. I love you. And I'm going to make an agreement with you. I want to be personally connected to you forever. This is like far and above, beyond anything that we could have with a person. God's not forgetful, too busy. He doesn't say, hey, let's meet for coffee and then refer you to a handler to to just kind of say, oh, well, sorry, he's too busy. No, God wants to meet with us. He wants to spend time with us. And one thing we're going to observe throughout this passage as we read, they begin to recount their history and how God has acted towards them, how he has kept his word but how they haven't kept their word to him. There's a huge contrast, and I want you to be thinking about it, between the people and God. The people have done wickedly, but God has only been good to them. And we see it repeated again and again. And what's true then remains true today. We have not responded righteously according to the goodness God has shown us. There's a sense of justice within us that says, you know, for as good as God has been towards me, I have not been good towards him. And that's the place where the people found themselves. Verse 9. 
You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. God is not like the gods made by the hands of men that have eyes and they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have hands but cannot do. They have feet but they have to be carried around. They can't move for themselves. It says that God saw the affliction of his people. God heard their cry when they were being oppressed. God did signs and wonders. He led his people through with that fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And he made a way of escape for them. When the enemies were pressing behind them and they thought they were going to perish and they were crying out to God, he opened a way through the Red Sea for them to miraculously pass through on dry ground. And then he destroyed their enemies. So they were saved, but their enemies destroyed. And these aren't fables, these aren't legendary tales, but these are true historical events. Um, It's common for people to say a Bible story. I don't prefer to use that term just because a story in modern day definition is a version of events that may or may not be true. It could be just a fable. It could be something that's uh, made up. But This is a historical true thing that has happened. What God has done is, and God's preserved it in his word, so that we can not only know what he has said, but what he has done, and who he is. That's really, um, and how we can relate to him. That's what's so important. Paul wrote in Romans 15 verse 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning." that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So how can the verses that we read in Nehemiah give us comfort and hope? Well, God sees when you are afflicted. God hears when you cry out to Him. He heard them, and He'll hear you. God led them when they didn't know where to go, when there was actually the way was blockaded for them. God opened a way for them to get through. Through the very thing that seemed to block them, that was the way he opened. God will lead and protect us too, won't he? This is very comforting, especially when we realize that we don't know where to go, and we don't know what to do, and we don't have any power to change our situation. So for those who are helpless, for those who are hopeless, we have great comfort and hope through what we're reading here when we apply it to our situation. How much do we rely upon the plain, unadorned Word of God to guide us, to direct us in our lives? God's people realized they needed it then, and we still need it now, don't we? Verse 13, You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of your servant Moses. 
Moses, your servant, excuse me. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. So this great God who made everything, the one who had made a covenant and a promise that he had kept, this eternal, all-powerful God, he came down to men. He revealed himself on Sinai, and it says with thunderings, with uh, lightning, the ground was shaking, there was this fire, a dark cloud, and a voice booming out of it, and the people were like shaking because they were like, Moses, you talk to God. We're going to die if we're too close to him because he's just too powerful for us. And he chose the Jews. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you my laws. And they promised to do everything he said. God gave them the privilege of knowing his law. We may not think that's a privilege, but um, wouldn't it be in our best interest to know the law we're held accountable to observe? Isn't that good for us to actually know what the law is? No one in New South Wales is allowed to have their L's unless they've passed a written exam which demonstrates their knowledge of the rules of the road, the laws. And you would agree that that's not only good for them, but for those who are not on their L's anymore, right? It's good for everybody for them to have understanding of what the rules of the road are, the laws that they're going to be held accountable to. Now, God, he graciously accepted the Israelites before they knew or even did the first one of his statutes, right? He gave, he chose them before they even did any of his laws. They were breaking his laws constantly, but he still chose them. He freely fed them with manna from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them the land that he had promised to give them. All came to pass. And if we're going to rely upon a GPS to help me get from here to there in a Sydney street, well, how much more do we need the Word of God to help us navigate through this life where we can be under attack and we are uh, confused and struggling? We need God. Now, what is so amazing is God, He didn't just reveal Himself in power. Like, I suppose if we were God or a king, we would want to put our stamp of authority on things and take great pains to not appear weak or to be, to just show that we are the boss. You know, like, what I say, it goes. And, and I'm gonna uphold it. I'm not gonna be trampled on by anybody. But God came to earth as a baby. And Jesus Christ submitted to Joseph and Mary, his parents. It says that he submitted himself to them. From humble beginnings, he made himself of no reputation. And he faced the death of the cross to save sinners. You think about that. This is God. This is God humbling himself. He doesn't have to humble himself, but he wants to. Because God revealed in a most personal way his love his forgiveness, his patience, his grace in the person of Jesus Christ, which could not adequately be conveyed only with promises and laws and the provision of food and water. Jesus himself became the living bread of whom we partake and can live forever. He is the water who springs up into eternal life for all who drink and partake of him when we repent and we trust in the new covenant of his blood that washes us from sin. In Jesus, we find rest for our souls. 
And if we will repent and trust in him, we too will be born again and enter into an inheritance that God has prepared for those who love him. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill us. I mean, how grateful should we be towards him for all he has done? Things that he didn't have to do, but he wanted to because he loves us. Verse 16, But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they molded a calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So God is glorious. His laws were good. The people were privileged and honored to be given them. And yet, it says they were proud. They rebelled against God. They chose to go their own way. God said, go this way, and they hardened their necks. It's like, you know, a horse, when you have the bit and the bridle, and you you pull gently, it learns that when you're pulling, it means go that way. So wherever the head goes, that's where the body's going to go. But they said, no. And he's like, this way. Mm. They're just going to go their own way. They hardened their neck. They refused to yield when he guided them. And they organized themselves a leader to return to bondage. I was reading this week that they say, you know, God said, go into the land. And it said, instead of going up, they were all in their tents and complaining against God and saying, you know what? God hates us. That's why we're here. Let's go back to Egypt. When they were the ones who were crying out to God in Egypt, Lord, deliver us. And then God said, go up. Now is the time to enter in. And the people go, no. There's there's giants, there's fortifications in the land. We're going to get a leader and go back. God, he was ready to pardon. It says, you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Now, at some point, have you ever had those moments when your patience reaches the end? And you say, you want to go your own way? Fine. Be gone. Go your own way. And don't expect any help from me, right? At a point where we're, we're just done and we're just ready to cut off that person from our good grace because they're clearly not getting it. And we're going to withhold something from them to show them, uh, I guess, the pain of going their own way. Now, when I was a supervisor in a building trade for many years, I felt the bar was relatively low um, when we had apprentices come in or I had people working for me. It's like you come to work on time, you do what you're told, you have a good attitude, you stay on task, you quit doing drugs. If you do these five things, you can have a long and lucrative career in this industry. Just come to work, have a good attitude, listen. It's pretty simple. Just do your thing. But if a worker continued to offend in any of these areas, I would not hesitate to fire them. 
because I wasn't interested in dead weight. I wasn't interested in in trying to carry someone who didn't want to be part of the team. Put it this way. If God treated people how we treat employees, or how I have treated employees, the Jews and every one of us would have been thrown aside as ungrateful, lazy, worthless, stubborn, dead weight, and saying, these people are not bringing glory to my name. They are not getting it. They are not following my instructions. They they are done, right? Bring me somebody else. But God didn't do that. He was faithful to his people. When they provoked him, that's like they were trying to get a rise out of him. When they're provoking him and they're saying, hey, this is the, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. When Moses is getting the law from God, even then God did not withhold food from them. He kept their clothes for 40 years without wearing out. He kept feeding them despite their unfaithfulness to him. On the basis of the covenant he made, not on the basis of their performance, he kept his word because he loved them. Now, God's grace to his people it should not embolden us to sin, but it should help us realize that God is so awesome in his grace and goodness that he wouldn't cast me aside because I've made a mistake when I've been faithful to him. God's been faithful and he will keep being faithful. Verse 22, Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets, whom you who testified against them to turn to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hands of their enemies. God gave his people victory. He brought them into the land and he gave them abundance, right? He gave them houses they didn't have to build, vineyards and cisterns that were already dug, uh, fruitful trees and uh, olive groves. And it says, for a season, the people delighted in God. They were able to say, "This, all this that we have, we didn't have this before. We only have this because of God. And they delighted in God, not just in the stuff. But a day came when that changed. And it says, they rebelled against the God who gave them everything. God sends prophets to warn them. What did they do? They killed the prophets. They weren't willing to listen. They provoked God again with their unbelief, their rebellion. Yet God did not destroy them entirely. He allowed them to fall into the hands of their enemies. He preserved them. And when they cried out to him, he sent a deliverer. He would send up, he raised up judges, right? To save his people. And why? It says in verse 27, 
according to your abundant mercies. Not because the people reformed themselves. It was because God was merciful. That's why they survived. That's why they thrived. Because God was merciful to them. He was good. Isn't the grace of God amazing? He gave gifts to people he knew would be disobedient to him. He knew how they were going to act after he gave them these riches, and yet he still gave them the riches. Now, if we know a gift's not going to be appreciated or used in the way we'd like, it typically would lead us not to give or to withhold from giving. Or we'd give once and go, you know, I gave him a gift, he spent it all on whatever, I don't really approve of that, so I'm not going to give him a gift. Right? See, we're not gracious like God is gracious. He knew that he would give them resources and they would use those resources to oppress one another. And and he they, they would use their freedom to kill his prophets. And yet he gave it to them anyway because he's gracious and he's merciful. Kings kill all threats to their house to their honor or their name. But God was gracious to those who opposed him so that he might show his mercy. He is a God of law and justice, but he is loving, gracious, and generous. Verse 28, But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. You got to love that nevertheless in there. Like, yeah, the people, they were just disobedient. They were rebellious. But God, you heard them. You were gracious and merciful. Many times, not just once or twice, many times they were delivered. Their pride persisted. They sinned against God. God could have, and from a man's perspective, God should have completely wiped them from the earth as he did other nations, but he would not. He remembered his covenant. God is gracious and merciful. Jesus was once asked by a lawyer, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you look in your Bibles in Luke 10, 26 through 28, you see the answer. The Pharisees studied the word of God, thinking that in them they could have eternal life. But life was in Jesus. However, if we were to keep this law perfectly, Jesus says we could live. The fact is, none of us have, and none of us could keep this law. But let's just see if you stack up well against this one. So he says, what must I do to live? And he doesn't give him the gospel here. He points him to the law, something the man was familiar with as a lawyer. Luke 10, 
26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. If you love God like that, that's how you have eternal life. But the man, knowing that he hadn't loved God, begins to say, well, who is my neighbor? Starts trying to justify himself. Anyone who justifies himself before God will never be justified as righteous. It's only those who humble themselves and confess their sin before God and repent, they are the ones who will be forgiven. To them will be imputed God's righteousness by his grace not because you earned it. They were forgetful. They had not remained faithful. And I think we can all say, we are all disqualified from eternal life. If this is what we must do, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all our days without fail, we're like, yeah, that that doesn't look like me. And we haven't loved our neighbors ourselves even. Even if that was just the one. Love your neighbor as yourself. I haven't done to others as I would have them do unto me, have I? No, I haven't. We have been proud. We have not been obedient according to the goodness God has showed us. We have pushed back against the boundaries that God has put in our lives. We have rejected his commands. We have taken our own counsel. And as I'm reading through this, I'm like, what a wretch I am. How ungrateful. How unthankful. How selfish. I'm just just saying, wow, Lord, I just see that, that I am so unworthy of your love or your grace. But despite our wanderings, God has not forsaken to us. He's come to us in the person of Jesus. And instead of just feeling perpetually guilty for my faults, we ought, in a, we ought to acknowledge the goodness and the grace of God. You can just feel bad about yourself and get all beat up because you failed and stay there. Or you can say, yeah, it's true, I failed but God loves me and he's made a way for me to be forgiven. And he's so good towards me. See the goodness that he's shown towards his people. Won't he also be gracious and merciful to those who repent and cry out to him? He's promised to do so. And I trust him. So God's good. Instead of focusing on how bad I am, I look at the goodness of God. And that's how we pull ourselves. He lifts us out of that pit. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, an awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For you have not served, for they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Now they make this prayer very personal. They acknowledge this great and awesome and mighty God that's given them a covenant. And they acknowledge that they have been wicked. They haven't done what God has told them. That their fathers and them, they have been disobedient. 
And if we were to take honest inventory of our lives, the words spoken before God, we also could say, God, you've been good. I have not been good. I have not kept your law. I have not loved as I should. I have done wickedly. James 2.10, it says, if we're guilty of breaking one of God's laws, we are guilty of breaking all of them. We're guilty. Our guilt is beyond reckoning. We deserve to be utterly lost without hope forever. We haven't even repented as we should. Like, we've just failed in everything. However, by God's grace, we can lift our eyes above our own failures and sins and see the love that he shed abroad through Jesus Christ. That with the blood of Christ, he has sprinkled many nations and all who come to him, he will not cast out. He will save to the uttermost all those who come to him. And we can see as children, God the Father extending arms of grace and mercy, saying, come to me, come to me, be comforted, find rest for your souls forever. Verse 36, here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of the, all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. A lot had happened between the time when God made that covenant with Abraham and the people here in Nehemiah's day, about 1,500 years. That time was long. But now they called out to God on this 24th day of the seventh month in sackcloth before him. And they said, here we are, servants today. Like a lot of water has gone under the bridge, but today we're yours, God. We're going to serve you today. And they affirmed that God had been generous to them. That And that they acknowledged. We have suffered for our sin. Because of our sin, we went into captivity. Because of our sin, we are being taxed by the Persians, by the Medes and Persians. Like, we don't have full control over our stuff. They can come and take our cattle if they want. Like, we're, we're having a hard time. We are in distress. But Lord, what you've done by allowing this, you've been just. You've been good. Because we've sinned. And despite their current problems, and this is really key, they reaffirmed the covenant God made with them. It would have been one thing if they were living high on the hog and things were good and everyone's health was great and they were rich and abundant and they're like, you know, now is a good time to turn to the Lord. No, they were in distress. They were struggling and they say, we need you, God. And we're going to come before you today as your servants in a hard time, in a difficult time, because you've been faithful and we want to be faithful to you. God made a covenant with Abraham and now today these people are like, Lord, we're making an agreement with you. You see that? Verse 38, we make a sure covenant. And we're going to write our names down. We're going to stand up before you and affirm that we are going to agree and walk according to this covenant you give us. Our fathers haven't. We haven't, but we're going to today. 
Today is a new day, and we're going to do what you want today. There's a huge difference between saying, in principle, oh, that sounds like a great deal, and actually writing your name down, signing your life away, right? Big difference. The people made this promise, and when you read something like this, you go, oh, this is a good idea. You know, I realize I haven't been as faithful to God as I should. Maybe if I wrote it down in my own blood, it would be, you know, there would be all these other people who would see it. I could write down my name and and stand and make this, you know, declaration that I'm going to do it. And that's what I need to kind of just give me enough strength to to actually follow through because I've said this before. I've wanted to do the right thing, but I just haven't. So if I have, you know, if we get together if we write something down, if we say, yes, I agree, then that'll be that'll help. Well, as we read, you'll see that they didn't get very far before they totally failed, completely. Even though they wrote down their names, even though they stood up. But you know, there was in them now a pattern of repentance and reformation. When they did wrong in the future and they were called out about it, they repented. There was a change in the people didn't mean they were perfect because they agreed to follow God, but they wanted to be. Is that you and me? Are we willing, like them, to say, Lord, here I am, your servant today. Not tomorrow, not when my circumstances change, not when I get out of you what I've been asking, not when you make good on this one thing, but Lord, I've been wicked, you've been good, Perhaps the things I'm dealing with are even because of my own sin, but in everything you've been just, and I trust you, and today I'm going to stand, and I'm going to serve you with all my might. I am going to love you, God help me, with my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself because I know this is your will and it pleases you. And Lord, I can't do it on my own, but help me to do it. Because that's what I want. Will you serve God today? Will you say, Lord, I am your servant. Here I am today. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter about your track record. We can look to God and say, God's track record's been perfect. His word is sure. I am not faithful, but he is. And because he is, he's trustworthy. I can believe him and he's worthy to be praised. Our past might be a pattern of wickedness, but we can institute a new pattern of faithfulness by his grace. So if you could turn to Hebrews 10, we'll just close here. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. God's made a new way for us to live through faith in him, Though we have sinned, though we have erred, and we have been proud and hardened our necks against him, we can be bold to come to God in forgiveness, in adoration. Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're called to be like Nehemiah and those people, not just congregating, but exhorting and leading one another, encouraging each other to take new steps in faith of God because they trusted God. I mean, they were all really on equal footing, both Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the people. They said, we, we have sinned. But God help us, here we are, your servants today. And we stand before God, not because we are able, but because he is faithful. That's what it says in verse 23. It's not because you're strong that you can stand. It's because God is faithful. And and it's not because of your uh, knowledge that you can stand, but through the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 6, it tells us we're able to stand. Even when the enemy is attacking us, we can stand strong, wearing the armor of God. So will you stand today as the, before the Lord as his servant, reaffirming that covenant he has made with you, the covenant of Christ's blood. He's made a new and living way for us to relate to him through the Holy Spirit, to love him with all your heart, and to seek to do his will. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word and this great example of just regular people like us who know you, or have heard about you. But Lord, we realize we haven't lived as we should. In us, there's been pride and rebellion and disobedience. And and we haven't been gracious and merciful to others as you have been to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would just break our hearts for our sin and that you would lift our eyes to you because you're merciful, you're faithful, you're able to atone for our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be as those who exhort one another to good works, who encourage each other, who who could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that we could be humble in our service unto you and bring much glory and honor to your name. So Lord, as, as we read this passage in Nehemiah 9, it's like we're coming along our brothers and sisters in agreement that you are an awesome God, you are great and mighty, and you deserve far greater obedience and honor than what you've received from us. And we ask, Lord, that you would quicken us by your Spirit to walk in newness of life, that we would do the things that fully please you, and that you would be honored and glorified in our worship, in our work, in our daily activities and our thoughts. Lord, be everything for us, because we need you. Turn our eyes towards you again. Quicken our hearts to be moved for the love that you've shown us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.